Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Rich Harvey, editor at Bold Venture Press, discusses a century of Zorro. Zorro first appeared in the serialized novel, The Curse of Capistrano, in the pages of the pulp magazine, All Story Weekly, during August and September 1919. The talk was recorded on August 15, 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Zorro is 100. He first debuted in 1919 on August 9th just a week ago in the All Story magazine, and people have speculated that he was inspired by characters that preceded him like the Scarlet Pimpernel. Some people have speculated that he in turn has inspired characters like Batman, although we know now that Batman was largely ripped off from the shadow thanks to Tony Tolan and Will Murray. Uh, but his whole scenario in Milo does sound like the prototype for basically every masked vigilante of the 20th century. He's a dandified Don who reads poetry and plays music. Uh, he seems like a weakling, but he is secretly a masked crusader defending the citizens of Reina de los Angeles from uh, evil tyrants, the military, and all sorts of assorted criminal types who pass through the Pueblo. Um, Many people, I was having a conversation with a guy who said, who's your favorite Zorro? And of course he's referring to the actors who have portrayed Zorro. He in turn said, it seems like every generation has its own favorite Zorro, but often they are not referring to Johnston McCulley, the author of The Curse of Capistrano. Uh, because Douglas Fairbanks Sr. produced a movie a very successful motion picture just one year after the publication of the story was serialized in the All Story Weekly. Uh, many people believe that Zara was a character created by the movie studios for film and television. They know virtually nothing about his origins in the pulp magazine. Some people know that there was one novel, not realizing there were roughly five novels and dozens of short stories that followed. The movie starred Douglas Fairbanks. Johnston McCulley actually received credit at the beginning of the film, a very small credit. And the film, in turn, over the years, was followed by several other films. Don Q, Son of Zorro, it really wasn't a sequel to The Mark of Zorro. It was actually an adaptation of another novel called Don Q's Love Story, but they just sort of rewrote it to be Zorro. The Bold Caballero came out in 1936, Tyrone Power, was in The Mark of Zorro with Basil Rathbone, and there were several Saturday matinee serials that followed in the late 30s and throughout the 1940s. I have it on good authority that Zorro's Fighting Legion is the only one worth watching because it features the real Don Diego character. But the Zorro legend really begins with Johnston McCulley. He was raised in Chillicothe, Ohio, and in nearby Peoria, Illinois, he becomes a copy editor and then a reporter. Uh, eventually, he becomes a drama critic, and in time, he turns to writing dramas himself. I, I could not find any examples of articles that Macaulay wrote, but I was able to find some articles from 1904 and 1905 where he's actually cited 
Johnson McCulley, dramatic editor of the Oregon Daily Journal of Portland, was in Ogden yesterday. Apparently he was a very prestigious uh, critic in that area. Eventually he turns to writing plays, stage plays, and eventually he turns to writing fiction, and he begins appearing in magazines like the Pacific Monthly, which David Lee Smith has pointed out is actually his first fiction publication, not the Red Book, from October and November 1906, as everyone thought. He then turns eventually to the pulp magazines like the Argosy, Western Short Story Magazine, Detective Story. Johnston McCulley, if you go on the Fiction Mag's internet database, has page after page after page of story listings. He wrote, I don't suppose it's an exaggeration to say he wrote hundreds of detective and western stories. And then eventually he did begin dabbling in the masked crime fighter genre. Eventually he would create characters like Black Star. This issue of the All Story from 1916 is very important. Captain Fly by Night, a stunning romance of California in the early days. Around 1911 or 12, he moved out to Los Angeles, California, where he could be closer to Hollywood, and he begins selling screenplays and scenarios to movie producers. Captain Fly by Night is based in, well, McCulley came to know quite a bit about the history of California when it was under both Spanish and Mexican rule, but he never really delineates when some of his stories take place. Uh, he sort of takes events, characters and places and moves them around as is convenient for the plot. But that's gonna be a very important magazine, the All Story Weekly with a story of old California because three years later, he introduces Zorro in the Curse of Capistrano. Zorro becomes very popular. Douglas Fairbanks Sr. makes the film. In 1922, Macaulay publishes The Further Adventures of Zorro. After that, Zorro doesn't appear again in print until 1931, and then he begins appearing once a year, 34, 35, 36. And he goes away for a few years. Uh, the Curse of Capistrano depicts Don Diego Vega rising, rising up against the tyrannical government who is suppressing the friars, who is the military are basically stealing from the peasants and the farmers. And he basically gives them the courage to rise up and fight tyranny. But at the end of the first novel, he actually unmasks in front of the governor and a group of witnesses in return for amnesty. And the governor promises, I'll be good from now on. The Further Adventures of Zorro picks up. Don Diego Vega is now planning his wedding. Uh, he's fully convinced his days as a masked adventurer behind him. But unbeknownst to him, a horde of evil pirates are about to descend on Reina de los Angeles and sack the town. And unbeknownst to him, the governor is behind the plot. The governor seemed very affable at the end of the Curse of Capistrano, but here we find out he really wants revenge. And he makes a deal with the pirates. He says, go ahead and take what you want from Reina de los Angeles. Just make sure that you sack the Vega household. And upon hearing this, Diego takes up his sword. Everyone knows he's Zorro now, so he says, when I go into action, call me Zorro. And a horde of young caballeros become basically his army to fight the pirates and in turn fight the lancers. Um, he weds Lolita Polito, and then in the next novel, 
Zara rides again. He's a married man, uh, but an evil Zaro imposter comes around, and everyone can't believe that Don Diego Zaro has turned to crime, and so he has to come out of retirement again to clear his name. Uh, the Cursed Capistrano introduces Don Diego, it introduces his father, Don Alejandro Vago, and it introduces some of his adversaries, Sergeant Pedro Gonzalez, who was a blustery blowhard. Usually he's found in the tavern telling rather fabricated uh, or exaggerated tales of his uh, daring do. And his main enemy is Captain Ramon, the Commandante of the garrison. And this is where the continuity becomes a little strange in the Zaro stories. Everything moves from Curse of Capistrano into the further adventures of Zaro, except Pedro Gonzalez uh, in the first story is very antagonistic. Now he's more affable. And Captain Ramon, who Zara basically kills in the first novel in a duel in self-defense, is still walking around. It's the same Captain Ramon. He's just as feisty as ever. Macaulay says his body was twitching, but never really said he died. So I guess Macaulay is a back door. Uh, Zara rides again, appears in 1931. There are several short stories that follow where no one knows that he's Zaro. I can't explain that continuity. One story a year in Argosy for the next three or four years. Then Zaro disappears for a while. 20th Century Fox releases The Mark of Zaro with Tyrone Power in 1940. And in 1939, there's a serial. There's several serials for the next year. So Macaulay, at some point, returns to Zaro. This man is named Virgil Piles. He was the principal illustrator of the Zaro stories when they were in Argosy magazine. He was an art student, and I believe he was, he was doing sports cartoons and political cartoons for the New York Times before turning to pulp magazines in the Depression. Johnson McCulley is writing several stories while he's doing Zaro, and he's got several series characters. One of them is the Crimson Clown, who's sort of a gentleman thief who steals from other criminals. Also, he's got a lisping pickpocket named Thubway Tham, who, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Bold Venture Press reprinted Thubway Tham meets the Crimson Clown, which was a serial in Detective Story Magazine, and at one point, the spell checker in my Microsoft Word actually flashed a message saying, too many errors in this, it's shutting down. <laughs> Not realizing, of course, these are deliberate. Uh, he also had a series going. Uh, there, weren't, there were a handful of stories about a character named Peter Noggins, a detective who's kind of a cross between Hercule Poirot and Columbo. And he's in this magazine, but Johnson McCulley was writing a detective story. It's actually Harrington Strong, a pen name for McCulley, that writes the Peter Noggins story. Uh, McCulley had so many stories going in so many magazines that frequently he's under two names, his own name and he had five or six different pen names that he used regularly. While he's doing all these series characters, he's also writing a series of stories about old California. He's really mining all the research he's done. He's got the Zaro series going. He's writing stories like Black Randy, a novel of the gay blades of Zaro land. That I wonder about that, because that's going to come back to haunt moviegoers in the 1970s, because there was a motion picture called Zaro the Gay Blade, Wench Caravan. I didn't realize that was Virgil Piles that actually illustrated that cover. And that, and that original artwork is on sale in the dealer room this weekend. 
I believe Doug and Debbie Ellis have it. Now, I'm going to take a moment just to flip through my index cards and try and get back up to speed. Old California, I get really got ahead of myself. Macaulay's next Zorro story is in 1941, a year after the Mark of Zorro is in theaters. And this is going to be Zorro's final appearance in Argosy. Uh, this time, a lot of people have begun to forget that Don Diego is California. I noticed uh, a lot of the characters in the Zorro series very conveniently get amnesia so that McCulley can start over. Uh, Lolita Polito has died, his wife, and now Don Diego is in a terrible lethargy, and Don Alejandro wishes he would take up the mantle of Zorro again, and then some young woman and her husband are being blackmailed by some scoundrel, so Zorro takes up his blade to fight them once again. That was serialized over five issues. And again, that's Virgil Pyle illustrating, I believe. After this, Argosy Magazine the following year was purchased by popular publications. I don't know if that had anything to do with this being his last appearance, but three years later, Zorro now debuts in West Magazine. McCulley would go on to write 52 stories of Zorro. And these aren't just stories, this is a genuine series. Uh, he refines everything down to a point. Uh, everyone in California doesn't know that he's Zorro anymore, except for three people. His father, Don Alejandro, Fray Felipe, the monk at one of the Spanish missions that he confides in, and his manservant, Bernardo. Bernardo begins as a person who cannot hear or speak, and he's portrayed as not being all that intelligent. In the second Zorro novel, he's smarter and he can hear, but he still can't speak. In the sign of Zorro, he's gotten to the point where he's brought himself to the point where he can speak haltingly a little bit. But when the West series begins, he's back to being mute. But he's, but he's still deaf. And, and this is going to become one of the plot points 12 years later. Television is in its infancy in 1945. 12 years later, Zorro is going to be the subject of a major television series on the ABC network. And anyone who watches that television series and then reads these stories can see where the basis of the television series came from. These stories most closely mirror the television show. In fact, a couple of the stories were actually adapted into TV episodes. And this guy right here, the one clashing swords with Zorro, is Sergeant Manuel Garcia. From this point onward, we really don't hear from Pedro Gonzalez anymore. Garcia now becomes Zorro's frenemy. He's at odds with him, he's a soldier, it's a sworn duty to capture Zorro, but he realizes Zorro's not all bad, and sometimes he needs to work with Zorro to bring a criminal to justice. Uh, from this point onward, Garcia is the character who appears in almost every movie and film, television, comic book adaptation, not Gonzalez, but the Garcia of this story, at the end of the story, Don Alejandro asks Don Diego, did everything go okay? And Diego says this man Garcia is not to be trifled with. But later in the television series and the comic books and the films, he is to be trifled with. They basically portray Garcia as a buffoon. He's the comic relief. But in the West stories, he's a very capable soldier, and at times he really brings great consternation to Zorro. Uh, 52 stories of Zorro, that's great that we have this wonderful series going. The drawback is 
Zaro never really got the red carpet treatment in West. As you saw on that cover, they had a blurb announcing a new series of Zaro stories, but apparently they weren't excited enough to actually commission a cover. West usually featured covers of generic cowboys, often wearing red shirts against yellow backgrounds or yellow shirts against red backgrounds later in the 40s. Uh, Zaro's Double Danger, A Task for Zaro, and Zaro's Fight for Life. Most of the stories in West are very short, 6,000 words max, some are as few as 3,000. But these three stories, these are novellas and novelettes. They are at least 20 to 35,000 words. In these issues, Zaro takes up at least a third, almost half of the magazine, but he still doesn't get it covered. Uh, this is not like Argosy Magazine, where he was prominently featured. And often his uh, stories only have one illustration. The primary illustrator of all the Zaro stories in West was Joseph Farron. Uh, he actually illustrated some stuff. He illustrated the last few issues of The Spider. He illustrated for dozens of publishers and dozens of magazines. His illustrations are good, but as you can see, he's portraying Zaro with this full face mask, not the half mask that we've come to associate him with or the bandana mask he ties behind his head. Zaro appears in West Magazine from 1944 to 1951. Three years later, New Publications Incorporated, which is actually Popular Publications, publishes Zaro Rides the Trail. This is the May 1954 issue. The next issue, August 1954, is the last. So I don't know if McCulley wrote this story specifically for Max Brand's Western. Perhaps he wrote it for West, and then when that series ended, it landed here, and this was them clearing out their inventory, because uh, at 1954, Popular Publications was basically winding down its line of pulp magazines, and, and Argosy was gradually becoming uh, a slick magazine. Zara becomes the star of comic books from Dell. Uh, Many of these were illustrated by Everett Raymond Kinsler, among others, although Everett Raymond Kinsler was never very happy with uh, the inks that were applied to his work. He felt that it kind of changed the appearance of it. A few years later, Dell starts releasing comic books depicting this gentleman, Guy Williams, and they're illustrated by notable artist Alex Toth. These are tie-ins to the Walt Disney Television show that would debut in 1957. And it's probably one of the more, well, again, everyone has their favorite Zorro, but this television series is still popular today. It became the Zorro for at least two generations. And there's Johnston McCulley himself, flanked by Zorro, played by Guy Williams, and Sergeant Garcia, played by Henry Calvin. And that gentleman on the far right is Mitchell Gertz. He was a Hollywood agent who began working with Johnston McCulley, and somehow he convinced Johnston McCulley to sell all his rights to Zorro to him. After which he founded Zorro Productions, and he went to work convincing Walt Disney that he needed to make a television series based on Zorro. And the television series touched off basically an avalanche of merchandise, the Zorro action set. There was a reporter for one of the Illinois newspapers who actually commented. He went to interview Guy Williams and he took his son with him and he made a comment. When I was a kid, I was watching Douglas Fairbanks Sr., but I didn't have a mask and a hat and a sword and a flintlock that I could watch with. 
and uh, the Zara playset. Um, this company made several playsets, but Zara was kind of unique because while, while they made war sets and western sets, the Zara playset had to have special characters for the Lancers and that cross sash they wore. These are all pretty expensive collectibles if you can find them. After the second season begins in 1958, Johnson McCulley passes away at the age of 75. Uh, the Associated Press, uh, in their lead sentence, said, Zorro has outlived his creator, which I thought was kind of a tactless lead sentence. Um, he died on November 24th, although I think it might say 25th there, 1958. The show had been on for a little over a year. And then, here's Alpha and Omega, A to Z, Zorro and the Curse of Capistrano, and the last original story by Zorro's creator, The Mask of Zorro, in short stories for men, dated April 1959, four months after he passed away. Now, here we go with the continuity discrepancy again. Johnston McCulley, well, yeah, short stories is a men's adventure pulp, not a pulp, but close enough. Uh, there's a, a, someone comes into town with a lot of money, some traveling salesman, he's murdered, someone carves a Z on a tree, and for some strange reason, everyone is very eager to assume that Zaro has turned to crime, and Diego has to say, has to save face, but no one remembers that he's Zaro again, including his father, Don Alejandro. <laughs> now, I, I suspect Johnston McCulley may have done that because he seemed to be of the mind after a certain number of years, whatever had gone before didn't count. We didn't have Amazon and eBay, but there were used bookstores and used magazine stores, but McCulley seemed to take the attitude, if it's more than five or 10 years old, no one's gonna be able to find it anyway. And maybe he did a reboot of the continuity because he figured the TV series that debuted in late 57 more or less begins by adapting the mark of Zorro, where again, only Bernardo knows that he's Zorro. Ironically though, just a few weeks before this issue was published, there's a second season episode where Diego confesses to his father that he's Zorro, and Alejandro smiles and says, I've known for some time. In turn, surprising Diego. So of course, McCulley has kind of shot, well, since he's died, it doesn't matter, but he did kind of shoot himself in the foot. Perhaps he didn't know that they were planning such an episode, or perhaps the story had been written years earlier and just gathered dust. After the TV series ends, after the third season, Zaro appears in foreign films, uh, some of which are more accurate to the legend than others, and he also appears in several comic books. Uh, many of these comic books are now being reprinted by a company called American Mythology, but they're being reprinted in English because they've never appeared in America prior to being reprinted by them. And one finally remembered foreign film as Elaine Dillon as Zorro. I, this was the first Zorro I ever saw because the CBS television network played it ad nauseum in the 70s and 80s. The New Adventures of Zorro was a Saturday morning cartoon series in 1981 and Zorro, Zorro and the Gay Blade was a humorous approach to Zorro. 
featuring the evil son of Don Diego, who's really out for fame and fortune. He injures himself, and then his gay brother takes over as a Zorro that more closely resembles Don Diego's dandy disguise. In that respect, Don Diego kind of resembles Clark Kent. He's so meek, no one assumes that he's really the heroic Zorro. Then a situation comedy, probably inspired by Zorro and the Gay Blade, appears on the CBS television network in 1983. It runs for five weeks, and it's canceled. <coughs> Zorro debuts again in 1990 as a television series. Uh, filmed in Madrid and starring Duncan Rager, a former Olympic ice skater, as Zorro. The actor Henry Darrow did the voice of Zorro in the Saturday morning cartoon, and when Guy Williams, the actor from the 1950 series, could not take the part because his health was failing, Henry Darrow became the older Don Diego, training his son to be the new Zorro. And then, in this television series, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. was Don Alejandro for the first season. When he couldn't continue, Henry Darrow moved over here and became Zorro's father. <laughs> So he had a sort of a little Zorro trifecta going. And then, of course, uh, later around the late 1990s, Antonio Banderas and Anthony Hopkins star in The Mask of Zorro, which is the same premise. Again, Banderas' character is not his son, but it's the older Don Diego training someone new to take over the Zorro mantle. And Skull and Crossbones was a novel based on the movie continuity of uh, Banderas and Hopkins. Forge Books put out two or three brand new Zorro novels with artwork by Julie Bell. Don McGregor began writing comic books for Tops, and he also did a Zorro comic strip for two years. The, the launch of that was a graphic novel, a two-parter, called Zorro vs. Zorro Dracula, which became quite popular. And then Isabella Allende, in the mid-2000s, uh, her novel was published. It's not really a Zorro novel. A more accurate title would be Don Diego. It's Diego in Spain training to become a swordsman. And it's more of a coming-of-age story. If you like that sort of thing, you may love it. If you're a Zorro fan and you're expecting action and comedy, you're not going to get it. And today, here's a news story by Peter David, Zorro and the Little Devil, published by Bold Venture Press. This, this is a new band of pirates coming to Reina de Los Angeles, but they have a very specific goal in mind. There is a treasure hidden somewhere that they are seeking, and Zorro gets involved. Peter David, he's best known for writing The Incredible Hulk for 12 years for Marvel Comics, and he's done numerous novelizations of comic book characters that get adapted into film. Uh, he had a theory that after the unmasking in the original novel, The Mask of Zorro, Alejandro and Bernardo and Fray Felipe and Diego himself start seeding the rumor that Diego was actually posing as Zorro so that the real Zorro could escape capture. Some people eventually come to believe it. Peter David posits that some people never did believe Diego was Zorro in the first place. Again, he was so convincing as a fop. And that, that explains away the mark of Zorro, the curse of Capistrano, but it really doesn't explain away all the other inconsistencies in the series. Unless, unless we assume that the West Magazine stories actually took place before the curse of Capistrano. Uh, Django and Zorro was a comic book tie-in. Uh, and, and now, 
because I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Django, the spaghetti westerns, and what Quentin Tarantino did. Now there is talk about pre-production of a motion picture of Zorro and Django. That would lead, take Zorro away from his time period and move him ahead a few decades, but that would probably be more to pulp fans' liking because just a couple of years ago, they were talking about a Zorro motion picture that would actually bear more resemblance to the Mad Max films than the Zorro films. They were going to put him way in the future. And Zorro the Legendary Adventures is collecting a lot of these foreign comic books that have never appeared in the United States before in English. And there's an, uh, another Zorro series going from American mythology news stories, but they're taking Zorro into other genres. He's starting to encounter the supernatural. He's beginning to discover lost cities, and there's elements of steampunk, like the Wild Wild West television series. Uh, again, it's, they're paying homage to the original Zorro, although it's not quite to some purist's liking. And that brings us back to Chillicothe, Illinois, where Johnston McCulley was raised primarily. There is now, ignore the virus, Zorro will protect us. <laughs> There is now the McCulley Zorro exhibit in Chillicothe, Ohio. Uh, this sign was actually made by Pete Poplaski, a pulp collector and Zorro enthusiast, and a McCulley expert. He has actually lent a number of items from his collection to the museum. You'll see movie posters from America, from foreign countries. You'll see a lot of those exhibit uh, premiums that came out in the 1950s and beyond. And there are several items from Pete Poplaski's collection and others that have been given on permanent loan. Uh, Pete, Pete painted this portrait of Johnston McCulley. And if you go to the museum, you will see Johnston McCulley hardcovers, pulp magazines, paperbacks, movie and television memorabilia, and toy tie-ins. And if you look hard enough, you just might find Volume 1 through 6 of Zorro, The Complete Pulp Adventures, published by Bold Venture Press, along with some other books like Thubway Fan Meets the Crimson Clown and Zorro and the Little Devil. And you'll see these books too if you stop by this weekend at the Bold Venture Press table. <laughs> Viva El Zorro. I won't be around for the next hundred years, so I hope it's a good one. Time. I think I went through that a little faster than I meant to. All right, any questions or comments? Anyone want to correct my uh, inaccuracies? Where's Chillicothe? Where is Chillicothe? Well, I'll tell you what. Not convenient, that's where it is. I was actually, Chillicothe had a parade in May. They, they usually have an annual Zara parade. Illinois. Whatever. <laughs> Macaulay's Chillicothe was Illinois. But believe it or not, there's two towns called Chillicothe. There should be legislation saying, no, two towns with that name can't be that close together. But uh, they had a parade in May called Zorro is 100, and they commemorated the 100th anniversary, and I thought, well, that would be nice for us to attend. And it, it bears an uncanny resemblance to Robert E. Howard's Cross Plains, Texas, in that it's not very convenient to get to. 
It, no matter which airport you fly into, you, you've got at least a three-hour drive or bus ride. Um, I, I, I'm not exactly sure where Chillicothe is again. I just remember trying to chart a course and I said, I can't do it. What else? Yes, the Disney Zorro series did come out on DVD. Um, okay, you caught me. There were approximately 60 episodes of Zorro. They, they did roughly 26 episodes in season one and two, and then Walt Disney had a dispute with the ABC network, and so season three was limited to six to eight episodes. Can you say or sing the song? <laughs> no, I can't. Not unless you give me a lot of money. I will not sing. You have a pitch they are available on DVD, but unfortunately, Walt Disney Productions releases these special collector limited edition DVDs. And last year, I thought, I'd like to pick those up. And I see them on eBay and Amazon, $150, $200, far in excess, I think, of the retail price when they came out. Okay, so then there were 80 episodes, thank you. I don't profess to know everything about Zara. <laughs> Next. Just a comment, this has been an excellent presentation. Yes. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, I, I know I stumbled a couple times. Don Blues, but I forged through. I, I think only you noticed that. Yeah, it sounded, it sounded like an explosion to my ears. All right, well, that's it. Zara's 100th anniversary, and someone else has their hand up. <laughs> I, I read one of the Peter Noggin stories. One of them was published uh, roughly around 1922, and we reprinted it in a recent issue of Pulp Adventures, our quarterly. And as I was reading it, I was trying to get a read on this character. Sometimes he seems to bumble along, and then other times he seems very persnickety in the things he does, and I'm not sure if all the other Peter Noggin stories are like that, or maybe if the character is more consistent. I, I wouldn't put it past Johnson McCulley, like many pulp writers, to realize the editors want another Peter Noggin story, so maybe he just took an existing story and started rewriting it. And sometimes when they do that, the, the rewrite is not always 100% successful. Michelle Nolan says Davy Crockett was probably the number one fad in television in the 50s. Desire number two. I think I think you can make a serious argument that maybe Zaro and the Lone Ranger are arm wrestling for the number two spot. But yeah, Davy Crockett was easily number one. I, I just remember one fellow said that a retailer, they were selling all those Davy Crockett coon hats. And they could not keep them in stock. And then he said, literally, one day, none of them sold. And after that, none of them sold ever again. My first grade class had every single student came to school and they would get every girl who came to the Davy Crockett, who's in Every one. Mm. I, 
I, I can see people wearing the cap. I think Zara is a little more difficult, although I'm sure in like grade schools all across America, people were probably writing Z's on the wall, much to the chagrin of a teacher. <laughs> Anybody else? You. Um, has there ever been a facsimile reprint of the first Zora Pulse? The best. I, I know that, that you're coming. Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, I, I don't know. Brian Brown did one. Okay, Brian Brown, John DeWalt says, did a facsimile of the All Story with the Curse of Capistrano. And I know that Tom Roberts, Black Dog Press, he did a facsimile of the All Story that featured the further adventures of Zorro. So now you've got another book to look for. You're next. Oh. No, you're next. And then he's next, next. I, I had two questions. All right. Uh, I'm not sure about those. I really don't know much about those novels. DJ Artisan, I think I've heard that name before. Is that the Forge thing? Yeah, Forge. There were three of them. Well, I assume they just made a deal with uh, Zaro Productions. I mean, the blurbs on the cover say a new Zaro novel. And I think there's supposed to be an agreement in place that everything Zaro related that appears is supposed to bear that credit created by Johnston McCulley. But yeah, I heard something about that, how someone got credit over Macaulay at one point. And my other question was, for the next hundred years, what's the one thing that hasn't been done with Zora yet that you personally would like to see? Well, I'd like to see an anthology of Zara stories from Bold Venture Press, and we're working on that. So. I, uh, I, I don't know. I think sometimes as I'm reading the stories, there was one character I didn't mention. He appears sporadically throughout the Zara stories. Macaulay introduces a character named Mardoso. He's a retired pirate. And in some ways he bears a resemblance to Gonzalez in that he's always at the tavern. He's always chiseling people out of money to get them to buy him wine. And he boasts of his adventures when he was younger. And he sort of becomes almost like an informant. Every so often, someone needs help. And Bardoso tells Don Diego Vega, oh, so-and-so is being plagued by the soldiers. So-and-so has been swindled out of money because he knows that somehow telling Diego gets the information in the pipeline to Zaro. I, I don't think he ever puts two and two together and realizes, well, maybe Diego is Zaro because that would be difficult for Macaulay because only so many people are supposed to know the secret. But I, I might like to see something done with him. I think he's a character. Everybody does something with Bernardo. Everybody does something with Sergeant Garcia. Uh, one, uh, Moonstone did an anthology a few years ago, two of them, where someone actually told a story from the point of view of Zaro's horse, Tornado. <laughs> Who, by the way, I have done a keyword search of all the word files that we used for the Bold Venture Press reprints. Tornado does not appear once. So the best of my knowledge, he's never given a name until the Zaro television series. And all the Macaulay stories, he's just Zaro's black horse, or his steed, or his trusty whatever, stallion. Rich, are you aware the only female Zaro in history was Ruth Sterling, Zaro's black whip? I heard about that, and we were joking about that. It's a pretty good serial, 1944 Republic, with Zaro's black whip. Uh, Linda Sterling, the queen of the serials, did it. And she did very well. And I wondered if there's ever been a female Zorro besides her. 
you know, someone said, oh, I'll give it to you, I promise. There was a, there was a serial, Zara's Black Whip, starring Linda Sterling, and we joked, why didn't they just make it Senorita Scorpion? But yeah, there was a television series called The Queen of Swords, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but at one point, Don McGregor in the Topps comic of Zorro, he sort of took it in a, the direction of a wild, wild west. He started bringing in more colorful villains, elements of steampunk technology. He introduced a character named Lady Rawhide, who became so popular, she got her own comic book written by McGregor. And at one point, Zorro Productions was actually talking about a television series starring Lady Rawhide. And then that production company came out with the Queen of Swords. And more importantly, McGregor told me, there's a story he wrote called The Night They Killed Lady Rawhide. There was a television episode called The Night They Killed the Queen of Swords. And he said it was a virtual rip from his comic script. And Zara Productions was looking into legal action, but then the Queen of Swords died from low ratings because it wasn't a very well-made program. And that kind of squelched that. And as I remarked to John Gertz, the president of Zara Productions, that's unfortunate. That's an example of how a bad project can take a good project down with it. But I think in the future there could very well be a female Zara because they're exploring all these different... Actually, there's been a female... They, there was a character called Lady Zaro in the comics recently, starring opposite Lady Rawhide, but I don't know if there's actually a female Zaro in the works or not. Okay, so because you're, you're talking about the new Zaro comics or whatever, and uh, I'm because I have a friend who, who's written a miniseries that's basically Zaro meets Cthulhu. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I hope it's a team up because I don't think he stands a chance. Jason Powell, he knows Lovecraft's work and he's familiar with that. And so he had to like learn more about Zorro. And then like, okay, you know, and to work with the company to like write a story that would work that, you know, both be Lovecraftian, which, you know, is psychological and, you know, dark, and still be Zorro, which is sort of light and adventurous. And there were a lot of ideas, and they got shot down, and they had to work. It's just like, you, you can't have Zorro punch out Cthulhu. That, does, you know, that might work for Zorro fans, but it doesn't work for Cthulhu fans. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm learning a lot about, like, you know, how, like, oh, all this stuff about Zorro. Like, how, yeah, I see it. You know, like, you know, like, how do you move muscle, like, or mind of influence, like Batman and other superheroes? It's funny you mentioned Batman because you said you can't have Zorro punch out Cthulhu. Isn't that the problem they had on that two-part television episode where Batman meets the Green Hornet? They wanted, they were saying, well, who's going to win the fight? So they had to have him fight to a draw. Oh, yeah. But Bruce Lee almost walked out, yeah, walked off the show over it. At least there, that's who guys should be in two fights. Right. Well, if he can work something out, yeah. way in the back. Okay, last one. Well, what he said, Zorro, I can't imagine that Zorro Productions, since they have a trademark, would ever allow that without their uh, rubber stamp on it. Yeah. yeah. He, he, did, he did it for them. It's not okay. his company. So the, he, does, he did it for Zorro well, the, the folks at Zorro Productions are a nice bunch. They're, they're receptive to hearing the ideas, but of course, some are just not going to float. Mm. 
Ah, very interesting. I'll have to look into that. That's it. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.